And I want to read to you, uh, I think it's 19, down to verse 19, we're going this morning. John has uh, grouped his gospel in such a way that in the paragraph before this, we got to it towards the end of last week, but the last paragraph in John 11 is a courtroom scene, and the first paragraph in John 12 is a dining room scene, and then the second paragraph is out on the open road. There are these three scenes that John has put together, which explains why he has this anointing at Bethany before the triumphal entry, which is not the sequence of the other Gospels and probably not the sequence as it happened. Um, whether I say it again later or not, I don't know. But <clears throat> the paragraph we're about to read is on the Wednesday night. This is my guess. This is the Wednesday night before the Thursday night where Jesus has the Last Supper, before the Friday that he uh, will be crucified. And whereas the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is the Sunday before. But John, I think, has put them in that order because in the courtroom scene, there's reference to, and it talks about Jesus' death. In this paragraph, the anointing at Bethany, it talks about his burial. And in the triumphal entry, it talks about, or just after the triumphal entry, it talks about him being glorified his resurrection. It's the shadow of those events that are now um, looming, casting their shadow over the Lord Jesus. In fact, John 1 to 11 covers three years in the life of Jesus, uh, but from chapter 12 on, it's now condensed down to one week. There's this slowing down and this focusing in of conversations and teaching. So John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. In fact, he went to Bethany on every day for the next six days, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Uh, Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about, it says here, a pint of pure nard, about half a litre, or a bit less, um, an expensive perfume. She poured that on Jesus' feet, and then she wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, <clears throat> who was laid to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied was intended that she should say this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, a great crowd had come for the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, uh, shouting, Hosanna, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or shouting, Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Zechariah, Don't be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples didn't understand all of this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realised that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. And now the crowd that was with him 
uh, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this miraculous sign, went over to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, again for your word. You have watched over it for centuries. You have preserved it, translated it, and now we have the privilege of having it in our language. We pray for those who don't have it in theirs yet and pray that you would strengthen the work of the translators. Do we likewise, Lord, a translation by itself is not helpful to us without the work of your Spirit. So we ask again that the Holy Spirit might speak to us through the passage, through me, and that we might understand, Lord, what it is that you want to change in us, do in us, or even develop in us. So speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus is a person who divides responses, divides people. He divides time, B.C. and A.D., or B.C.E. and C.E., doesn't matter, still divides time. He divides humanity, divides families, divides friends. There's no one like him. No one in all of human history. He is unique and he's head of the pack. You either love him or hate him. They're the choices. Devoted to him or blaspheming his name. For him or against him. He's the only saviour of the world. And in John's Gospel, John paints that contrast all the way, very much in the first 11 chapters. And he'll come back to it at the end of his Gospel. Faith and unbelief contrasted. Light and darkness. And in this first paragraph that we're going to talk about this morning, the dining room scene, then you get Mary and Martha and to a certain extent Lazarus. You get that family very much on the side of supporting, devoted to and loving Jesus. And it's contrasted with Judas and the crowds and the Jewish leaders who uh, have various responses but invariably they are indifferent to him and opposed to him. So as I already said, there are three scenes, so <clears throat> let's have a look um, at, well, not the three scenes, we'll just look at the dining room one and the open road one. That'll do us for this morning. I want you to notice firstly, well, you won't get it out of John, <clears throat> but when you compare it to the other Gospels, you'll find out this is not in the house of Mary, Martha and Lazarus, which explains why that's, that's a strange thing when you first read it. If it was in their house... Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived in the village of Bethany, whom Lazarus raised from the dead. He was at dinner given in Jesus' honour. Martha was there, and Lazarus was among those sitting at the table. Why would they say that if it was in Lazarus's house? Well, of course he would have been there. Well, it wasn't his house. You compare the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, you'll find out it's in the house of a man named Simon. Simon the leper. Technically, Simon the ex-leper. You can't have dinner with a leper. But he was called Simon the leper because he was a leper and Jesus had healed him. So he was a remarkable dinner, given in the honour of Jesus and probably out of gratitude, both Mary and Martha, for their brother is back. Um, and Simon the leper is now back with, and perhaps he had a family and now he's back and with them. So you've got Simon... And Lazarus there, this, imagine the conversation and, 
It would have been a nice, long, slow evening of loving the Lord Jesus and sharing it and just gratitude for him. Mary and Martha especially, because back in that world, very different to our world, but when you did not have a man in the house, no father, no husband, no brother, then the women had no one to provide for them, no one to protect them or look after them. They were in a desperate situation and Jesus gave them back their brother. In order to achieve the purposes of God and to glorify, bring honour and glory to him and to reveal who he really is, certainly. But out of sheer gratitude, Mary and Martha are now, and here's Martha serving dinner in somebody else's house. And back in Luke 10, when she was doing it in her house and she was doing it to a smaller group, uh, she was whinging, she was complaining, remember that? But here there's not a complaint, there's not a word. She's quite happy. It's like heartfelt service, gratitude for the Lord Jesus and what he's done. Just deep appreciation from him and flowing out of that is potentially this change of attitude. That's preacher's license. I can make outrageous statements like that without much evidence. Martha is serving and joyfully. <clears throat> she does it because she loves Jesus and that's why we should serve the Lord Jesus too. He loves it for us. He loves for us to come together like this in a church context, for his people to gather together and to spend time on him. He likes that. He enjoys and he is worthy of our attention, our devotion, our adoration, of us investing our time to one of the most priceless gifts you can give. Of all of the things that we own and of all of the things that you can give, time is one of the most valuable. It's limited and when you give it away, when you spend time, you don't get it back. You can't buy it, you can't make it. So each Sunday when we gather together and we give God an hour or a couple of hours of our time, he appreciates it. He likes that. And of course then the evil one kicks in because he doesn't like it and so he'll come along and he'll try to upset you so that while you're here, like Martha back in Luke 10, you're here and you're giving God your time but you're not happy about it. She said, he did, they whatever. I wonder if that happened for you this morning on the way to church. And something goes wrong. During the week I was driving to work, I was away two, uh, two and a half days this week at a senior pastor's gathering. Senior pastors from across Australia got together at Gateway and we spent two full days and nights together and that was stimulating and good. On the way to one of those days, <coughs> the traffic was horrendous. And coming out of Drewvale, whereas now half a million people are now living, I'm quite sure, <laughs> and they all leave at about the time I leave, it's a car park on Mount Lindsay Highway. And anyway, so there's like two lanes joining three lanes. And Queenslanders suck at merging. You guys are terrible at it. Go to Sydney. Drive in Sydney for a month and you'll get it down pat. Just as a driving lesson and as a complete... No, I won't. <clears throat> no, I will. When you're merging, accelerate. Don't decelerate. Get it? What do you mean? <laughs> if 
If the person in front of you is decelerating, well, don't accelerate then. But usually when you merge, enough. I, f I don't feel any better for having said that. That was happening on this day. And this guy, now he was cranky. I'm going to a senior pastor's craft car. I wasn't cranking. I was looking forward to it. But he was um, uh, window down, arm out, you know, banging the side of the door and gesturing. And when the car park stopped, he's raising his arms. He's clearly frustrated. Anyway, I'm now level with him and I'm merging where he is. That's how I knew all of this was going on. He put his blinker in, on to go in the right lane. And he, he almost stopped, so now there is a gap. I'm going to lie now. There was a three-car lengths gap. <laughs> All right, it might have been one and a half, but there was plenty of room. So I went in front of him, I put my blinker on, and I was going to go in. Guess what he did? Accelerated. <laughs> but didn't accelerate into the other lane. Accelerated straight up. And then he swore at me. Now, what would you do? Yeah, well, I did too. <laughs> I waved my finger and I said, you had your blinker on. Then he drove off. Then I swore. I shouldn't have, but I did. <clears throat> Gee, I was furious. I acted inappropriately. I repented. Eventually. But I did. I apologised to the Lord. I apologise both not for swearing but also for my, my angry response to him. It's not appropriate and not godly and not what Jesus would do. <clears throat> Jesus would have got out and turned his car over and called him a, <laughs> called him a whited temple or something. <clears throat> All of that, Satan does things and the frustrations of life, he uses that to get us off kilter. And he does it especially on Sundays. So be aware. And so if that's happening, then just up the ante and protect yourself and respond you know, in a way which is going to be honouring to him. Make sense? Here is Martha out of um, serving with heartfelt you know, gratitude to the Lord Jesus. Then there is this beautiful picture. This is the one that captured me. And then there is Mary, verse 3. She takes a pint, this small jar of pure nard, pure no, an expensive perfume, John says. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and shockingly she wiped his feet with her hair and then, understatement of the scriptures, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Bet it would have been. Pure nard. What's going through Mary's heart and mind? This is not her house. Was she there and then she realised, oh, I could do that. And then she goes back to her house to get it. The Bible doesn't tell us any of these details. Just says that somehow she had it. Did she premeditate? she take it with her when she went? Don't know. We don't even know how she got it. It's incredibly expensive. It grows in the mountains of Tibet or China or India and the Himalayas and would have been carted on camelback somehow across deserts, hundreds, thousands of kilometres and... It's very expensive. Was it given to her as a gift? Did she save up and did she buy it? Did she inherit it? We don't know, but she's the owner of this little jar of pure nard, alabaster jar, another scripture will tell us. <clears throat> and she takes that, and Judas, the calculator, he tells us that it's worth a year's wages, 300 days. That's a lot of money. 
And she takes it, and Jesus is reclining at the table, and you've seen those sorts of pictures, so his feet are hanging out, which is why she anoints his feet. And she probably not just pours it over it, but she probably massages it in, and then she doesn't use a tea towel. She undoes her hair, which is, in their culture, um, almost inappropriate. But I don't think she was trying to be inappropriate, obviously. I think she was just deeply, deeply, both loving Jesus, but also just appreciating all that he had done for her. And she took that which was her best and gave it to him. That's the point. That we are likewise to give him our best. Not, not the leftovers, not the dregs, not the bit that I can afford, but the best. He is worthy and deserves the best. And the Holy Spirit records this for us and notes these details. It's almost like the Father has put his stamp of approval upon her beautiful act that we ought to be giving him our best. She's passionate. She's grateful. She's thankful. There must have been stunned silence. That perfume would have lingered on the body of the Lord Jesus. If my interpretation, my theory is correct, if this is Wednesday night, then probably that would have... that. Perfume would have been on his body on the Friday when they spat on him and they whipped him. There still would have been the lingering aroma of that very expensive perfume. Did she know? Did she understand that Jesus was going to die pretty soon? Or is it just the way that Jesus interprets it? that he knows obviously and that she like the other disciples probably hadn't put two and two together she had saved this perfume probably for a funeral probably but she hadn't used it for Lazarus most expensive thing she had and she brought it she went and got it she pours it out on the Lord Jesus the stunned silence then that was around the table at that time would have been broken by the horrible comment of Judas Why this waste? Why wasn't that sold? That's worth 300, denera, 300 days wages. How does he know? Because he's calculating, he's concealing and he's covetous. He doesn't notice and he can't measure the act of Martha or of Mary and their love and their gratitude, but he can calculate a jar of nard and what it's worth. He'd already calculated. Given the size of it, that's worth 300 days wages. He's concealing. He sounds like he's concerned for the poor. He sounds humanitarian, but he isn't. He's just covering it up because he just wanted to stick it in the treasury box so that he could lend himself to it. He's covetous. He's greedy. Pretending to be at the very table with Jesus and the disciples. Pretending to be a follower, but really following it for his own selfish means and purposes. He is a bad dude went against the grain for him to see something so valuable being thrown away. So he objects. And I would imagine in a pretty grumpy voice, what a waste. That's what the world does. The world doesn't understand Jesus. The world doesn't love Jesus. And the world thinks we're weird and wasteful when we spend time in worship, when we contribute financially to his work and kingdom, when we sacrificially give well, doesn't, I think, that's a waste. 
My dad wouldn't say it, <clears throat> but I think I've told you before. In every decision I ever made growing up, my dad was not really involved in it. He was providing for it, caring for me and all of that, for which I am very grateful. He's a good father. <clears throat> Decided that I was going to go to teacher's college, didn't say a word. Decided I was going to play AFL football, didn't say a word. When I came, was going to marry Rhonda, didn't say a word. Brought home a girlfriend before Rhonda, didn't say a word. <clears throat> Would have appreciated that one. Told him I'm leaving teaching and I'm going to go into the ministry. He got up from the dining room table, he grabbed me by the elbow, he said, come with me. He walked me into the lounge room, sat me down, and for the first time in my life, 27 years of age, 26 years of age, whatever it was, <clears throat> are you sure you should do this? That's a good career. That would be a waste. Never forgotten it. And I think that's reasonably typical. I don't think it's untypical of how people on the outside looking at us as we follow Jesus, they see us as being weird and wasteful. Whereas if you know Jesus, he's worth it. It's not a waste to invest your life in him. It's not a waste to give him your best. It's not a waste at all. It is a waste, like Judas, to think that you can pretend to follow him <clears throat> when really you're doing it for your own selfish means. Or like the crowd on the outside. In this paragraph, it talks about how the crowd, um, when they heard that Jesus was there and they knew Lazarus was there, uh, so they come along. They're not interested, they're just going along for the tourism, they're going along for the sensationalism of it. They just want to see these people. That's all that's going on there. So this horrible act of Judas, he objects. Why this waste? I wonder if somebody has said something like that to you. Well, the third scene, that's the dining room scene. Let's move on to the, the indifference of the crowd, if you like, or this out on the open road. This was a working day in Jerusalem. Sunday. It was technically, I think, the last official Sabbath because the Lord Jesus would die then the very next Friday. We're thinking about. About two million people had come to Jerusalem, or the numbers had swelled to about that. And there is this expectancy, there is this excitement, there is this fervour in the crowd. They would be reading certain psalms that are appropriate to that festival. One of them would have been Psalm 118, which contains the word Hosanna. We sang it this morning. It doesn't mean praise, it doesn't mean hail, it doesn't mean that. Hosanna means, save us now, deliver us. We are under the oppression of an enemy, of the Romans, for the Jews at this time. So when they were singing Hosanna, they are offering a prayer to God, get rid of the Romans, deliver us. So when they heard that Jesus was coming and he is on a donkey, they didn't see the donkey. Jesus is preaching a visual message. He's saying something very visually clear and strong. They didn't want to hear it. They weren't interested in a king coming in peace. They don't want to make peace. They want a military, violent takeover. They want freedom from Rome, not from their sin. They want to be independent. They want to make their own decisions as a nation. Jesus wants to reconcile them to Father. 
so that they can be in submission and obedience to him. They didn't want to hear his message. <clears throat> so they did what they had done generations before. They cut down palm branches, which I understand is like a, national, a symbol of the nationalism for Israel. And they started waving these palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, deliver us. Go on, do it. Go in and conquer them. Josephus, by the way, another his Jewish historian, he writes that at the time Jesus was riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate was riding into Jerusalem on a white stallion. They arrived in Jerusalem at about the same time. You have the leading of the oppressing army arriving in splendour and an arm, a military presence and you have God's anointed king riding in on a baby donkey. The rightful king came with a different mission, came to die in order to reconcile us to our heavenly father. The triumphal entry is probably misnamed, it should probably be called either the tragic entry or the misunderstood entry because they didn't get it. And in fact, Luke 19 tells us that just before Jesus entered Jerusalem, he wept over the city of Jerusalem. His heart was breaking for these people who were estranged from God. But as I said, they wanted the removal of Rome, not the removal of their sin. They were indifferent to him. So we should follow Jesus for who he is, not for what we think he might do for us. That's why they were following him because of what they expected or what he could do for them. Wow, a man, he could raise somebody from the dead, then what an army he would have. He'd kill them today and he'd raise them back and they'd be back in battle tomorrow. He'd be unbeatable. They were following Jesus, they were impressed with Jesus and we need to take the warning, don't follow Jesus for the temporal benefits that can come to you. And I know some preachers and some books and some TV whatever, and podcasts and everything else, some teaching goes around our world that if you follow Jesus, then you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy. If you're unemployed, he'll give you a job. If you're not married, then he'll find someone for you to fall romantically in love with. If your marriage is on the rocks, then Jesus can heal your divorce. All of these things. I'm following Jesus because of what he'll give me, what he'll do for me. And when he doesn't, well, then I'll stop following Jesus. Don't follow Jesus for what? he might provide for you, but rather follow him for who he is. He is God's appointed saviour. He is the Lord. And he is the one who is worthy of us submitting to and giving him our trust. Don't follow Jesus so that he might empower you for your agenda. Follow Jesus so you can follow his agenda. That's worth thinking through. Why am I following Jesus? And at the back of this crowd that was following Jesus inappropriately because they thought he was going to free them stood another group of people and just very, very quickly, they had their arms folded and they're frustrated. They've been plotting and planning to remove him. Caiaphas has even said back in that courtroom scene, that paragraph at the end of chapter 11, he even utters prophetically, it's much better if one person dies so that the nation doesn't go under. That was logical, it was wrong, but he didn't really understand what he was saying either. He had compromised and he knew that if there was an underground movement, if there was a groundswell get, getting behind Jesus, the Romans would intervene. They would remove the Sanhedrin. 
they would get rid of the temple, which is what, exactly what does happen 40 years later. They intervene. So Caiaphas is working politically to try and keep a lid on this. Who's concerned about this world. And yet behind all of these events, God was at work. So behind all of the events, God is at work. Somewhere in all of the events of life, there is something for us to reflect on, something for us to learn from, something for us to either be corrected through, to be changed, to become more like the Lord Jesus. God was working his plan out and he's doing exactly that in our lives and in our church and in our world. That's why our focus for this year is working with God. Looking for, listening to and trying to discern, Lord, what are you doing? And then joining him in it. One of the things we did at the senior pastors gathering this week was that one of the senior pastors led us in a session about um, being spirit-led, of responding to what the spirit is saying or doing. As you read the scriptures and you meditate, what did God say to me through that and what am I to do? Not just that, mainly that. One guy gave an illustration. Has God ever spoken to you in a dream? God can, I know that. But has he? Well, most of my dreams are like your dreams, I would imagine. They're just weird. They're just strange. Where does that come from? But we need to be open to the possibility that the Lord might very well speak to you in your dreams. So he's started now that if there is a dream and, and it's not of the weird sort, it's strange sort, he now writes them down and just to try and see, is the Lord trying to say something to me through it? I think that's probably worthwhile doing. We say it all the time. But if your dream is going to say something to you and it contradicts and it's different to the scriptures, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's just your lasagna repeating on you or something. <laughs> or it's your deep you know, inner psyche, your deep desires or wants or something. God will never contradict himself. That's why the Bible is so crucial, why you need to read it and know it, because then that becomes a filter and a checking balance for everything else that's going on around us. God can speak prophetically to us through people. God can speak to you through, you know, writings of books of other people. God can speak through preaching, obviously. God can speak to you over fellowship after church this morning as you gather together for coffee or as you hang around and have a conversation. It's worth taking the time. And so therefore this morning, has God spoken to you today? Spoken in the words of one of the songs. Spoken to you through the passage as we read it. Spoken to you through some of the stuff I've been saying. Has God spoken to you? And if he has, what did he say? Write it down. Date it. Don't lose it. And depending on what it is that he said to you, do something about it. And on the basis of that, it would be a very helpful thing, scary but helpful, is tell someone, listen, God, I think God said this to me today. That can either be a checking, do you think that was God? But it can also be a holding to account. I'm telling you because I want you to ask me next week or in a couple of weeks, have I done it? Hold each other to account. Do that in your life groups. Do that in your close relationships with people. Don't do it with strangers. Don't do that. 
one guy in one church used to go around with a, he had a notebook and he took out a pen and he would go up to anybody and everybody and say, how can I pray for you this week? And he'd be writing it down. And he thought he was being, you know, helpful. And it wasn't helpful, it was scary, in fact. <clears throat> Dining room, the heartfelt service of Martha. There's a lesson for us. Serving the Lord Jesus passionately. The devotion of Mary, the, sacri- the humble sacrificial act, gave her best, gave everything to him. Is that what you need to do? The horrible response of Judas. Don't be critical of others as they seek to honour the Lord Jesus. And be aware of the sensationalism of the crowd or even the tragic pretense of the crowd that some people will name the name of Jesus or even attend church in order for them to advance their agenda. They come to get what they think he will provide for them. They're in control and he is their servant. Be aware and at the same time, don't let that overly shock you. Because the Lord Jesus does bring out the best and the worst in human nature. And behind it all, God will be at work, achieving and advancing his kingdom and his purposes. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus. And it is true that he does divide humanity, divides families, divides relationships. I'm grateful, Lord, that we... I'm glad I find myself on the side of those who are devoted to him. And many of us are. In fact, Lord, it would be great if all of us found ourselves there. But like Mary and Martha, can you motivate us, help us to serve with a heartfelt passion, help us to give our absolute best, humbly and sacrificially to him. And give us wisdom to be discerning when there are awful, horrible responses or criticisms or when people just are so dismissive saying, this is wasteful. Because whatever we do for you, Lord, is never wasted, but always gratefully received and rewarded. And we pray for the people whom we know who haven't crossed the line yet, who are still trying perhaps to figure it out, who are sitting back and who are watching. We pray that you would be gracious to them, that you would open their hearts, that they might get a glimpse of who Jesus is and his significance. And may they likewise come and sit at his table, being made welcome. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.